right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to an episode of Honest Offense. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Ian Rosenberg. Ian has over 20 years of experience as a media lawyer. He has worked as legal counsel for ABC News since 2003. He's also an Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker and teaches media law at Brooklyn College. On top of all that, he has an excellent new book out, The Fight for Free Speech, 10 Cases That Define Our First Amendment Freedoms. Ian, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. I'll hold up the book <laughs> there we go. <laughs> we both got it. <laughs> and it, it really is. It's a great book. What I l- love about what you did with the book is that you tie current events in with relevant legal cases and then historical cases and First Amendment principles because that's something I always try to do because I, I I can get a little fatalistic when when I read when I spend too much time in current events. So it's nice to be able to compare it to previous events and previous cases to say, okay, not all of this is unprecedented. We've been through these issues before. We have some some foundations for how to deal with these issues. So I, I love that that's the style you went with with the book. Well, thank you. That, that was the concept uh, I had from the very beginning, partially from um, working with media, uh, stu- well, from communication students at Brooklyn College um, who are studying media law. And, um, and just also for, you know, over the last four years and more, um, people on all sides of the political spectrum are really clamoring about their free speech rights. And whether they're talking about, can Colin Kaepernick take a knee? Or what does it mean to have Nazis marching in Charlottesville? Or, or can we uh, can Trump stop Stormy Daniels from speaking on 60 Minutes? All of those questions um, are ones I answer in the book. And, and each chapter, as you say, begins with a contemporary question, and then provides the answer by telling the story of the people who fought for their rights all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, And then that decision really provides, if not the answer, then a lot of context um, about our First Amendment rights related to those questions. So I I both wanted to show how, as you were saying, that the issues that we are speaking of today, um, there's history we can learn from, and also to use that as a way to say, if you look at these 10 cases, you'll have a great uh, user's guide to understanding free speech. Yeah, yeah. And you're a media lawyer. You're in the corporate world. And I spent a little bit of time in corporate law. Before talking to you, I would have said 100% of corporate lawyers are not interested in kind of the more philosophical principles of the law. So many corporate lawyers are, you know, they're focused on their narrow area and, and doing what they need to do for their client. Have you always been interested in the First Amendment, in these these more philosophical big picture principles? How did you get into that? Uh, well, I was um, I was a theater major undergrad and I, um, at the University of Wisconsin, uh, and I happened to take a, a course from Professor Donald Downs, who's um, one of the country's leading uh, sort of free speech experts, and I, I just found it fascinating. Um, and so I got into constitutional law. I thought about um, doing some aspect of arts or media law. I applied to law and theater school at the same time, uh, got into both, but didn't want to um, be in debt, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and have a theater degree. Uh, so I went to law school at Cornell and uh, definitely tried to pursue um, First Amendment law from the beginning. Uh, the firm I worked at uh, is Cale Gordon and Rindell, and I was lucky um, to be working with Floyd Abrams, who's one of the country's preeminent uh, free speech lawyers, who argued the Pentagon Papers case and many others. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, there was a, I was, I'm very lucky, but there certainly was a goal um, to work on free speech issues. Uh, and then for the last uh, almost 18 years, I've been at ABC News, which is really um, a great, uh, a great place to be. And I'm really proud to help support uh, their journalism. It's funny that you said you, you went to law school to avoid going into so much debt. That's usually the advice I usually give people who are considering law school. I say, think about something else unless you're willing to go into that kind of debt. But I guess relative to a theater degree, well, that is the Well, relative to a theater yeah. degree, and also I think we're slightly different uh, graduation uh, times. I graduated in 98, and there was still the sort of the, a, a boom economy where if you did well at a good law school, you could get a high-paying job. Now, maybe it wouldn't be exactly the job you wanted, but um but uh but it it, it did help me uh, pay off that debt so right, I, right. I was lucky so let's get into the book so i first i want to again go into that historical perspective it it's interesting that there really aren't any major first amendment cases before the early 1900s and i i was curious i mean we, we had free speech issues they were going back to the alien sedition laws under under john adams 
why is it that the Supreme Court really didn't start addressing this, these issues until you know the 1910s? Uh, yeah, 1919, really, yeah. I, I think. Um, you know, I, I begin the book with, uh, as you're alluding to, with uh, the Abrams case, which involved anarchist uh, immigrants um, on the Lower East Side, right where I'm talking to you from, uh, literally blocks away, tossing uh, you know anti-World War One leaflets in English and Yiddish. Um, out into the street, and then that decision upholding their convictions um, for essentially sedition. Um, and uh, but uh, Justice Holmes and, and Justice Abrams joining him create sort of our modern notion of, of free speech in their dissent by talking about the marketplace of ideas. Um, so why um, why and so that's where I begin the book, 1919, and I, I think most people agree that's sort of the beginning of, of modern free speech law. Why? Um, not before then? I mean, that's a very interesting historical question. I, I think it is a, um, I mean, my guess um, is that there was this tension between, on the one hand, um, the country was literally founded on revolutionary journalism. Um, and on speaking out against the, the crown, um, which, you know, in, in pamphlets and speeches, um, in newspapers, uh, which, was a, which was a truly revolutionary act, not just in the sense that they, they were trying to break away from the government, but also was a radical act. And so that was sort of, in, uh, you know, built into our formation, our, our origin story as a country. And yet, what did that really mean was very unclear. Did it only mean um, that... Uh, uh, sort of the British tradition was that you had um, limits on stopping publication before they happened, sort of what's known as a prior restraint. Was it only about a prior restraint or was it something much more than that? And I think the court really just wasn't ready to grapple and, and uh, uh, the society wasn't really uh, ready to grapple uh, with that. Even in 1919, um, the court is still upholding people's convictions for criticizing the government, uh, which you would think would be such an easy um, today would be an easy free speech win. Um, there, there's no way that criticizing the government, even arguably advocating for illegal action, as, as the Abrams defendants were, um, we can we can talk about um, uh, that uh, more. But um, I, I think it was the, the tension, in short, between believing that free speech really meant something more than private prior restraint, but also um, that was pretty a crazy notion. And, and I, I think the courts weren't ready to necessarily embrace that until much later. Yeah. So, and let's talk about Abrams and the related case, Shank. So talk to me a little bit about, about the time, because it, this has always been a tension in America, right? Where we have these freedoms and people have the freedom to speak and say what they believe and, and propagate these ideas. But people will argue, well, that gives then, you know, communists and fascists and whoever your, your bogeyman is, is the, the power to then subvert the system of freedom. If, if through using these freedoms, they can gain power and destroy these freedoms. And I think that's the concern back in the 1919s. That's the concern even today. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what was going on back then? Sure, and I, I think you're you're pointing at a really interesting issue that I hope uh, I, I get at in the book, and I definitely try to, which is that the sweep of sort of whose speech is being repressed keeps changing. So um, the the cases, each contemporary issue sort of jumps around, but the cases I talk about move chronologically um, throughout the book. You can hopefully um, enjoy it like a record album that it all sort of holds together and, and gives you a framework for understanding our, our free speech freedoms. But you can also um, listen to them. Uh, or, or read them uh, individually, um, but but who is the who is the the speaker uh, or the dissenter that uh, rights are being repressed definitely changes. So with Abrams, um, we're talking about a, a character that I really didn't know about. Um, who is one of the Abrams defendants, Molly Steimer, um, who I focus on, and I think is just a, a fascinating um, revolutionary feminist anarchist um, spirit. Um, she, as well as um, her fellow um, defendants. Um, was a garment worker. Uh, she had come um, with her family fleeing anti-Semitism and, and pogroms in Eastern Europe. Uh, she gets to this country. Um, she's supporting her family, working as a garment worker here on the Lower East Side. Uh, and she becomes radicalized by how hard her life is, um, which is, I think, sometimes glamorized in, in the uh, immigrant experience, or if not glamorized, sort of just tossed over. Yeah, life was hard. Um, but, it, but it was very hard. Um, and um, she was looking for 
something else. And, and, and anarchism really appealed to her, um, the, the combination of, of women's rights um, and collective um, sort of support um, was um, deeply, um, uh, she was deeply passionate about. Their particular beef was when, um, in the course of World War I, uh, the American government had decided to get involved on the Russian front, uh, supposedly to defend our allies in, in Yugoslavia and other places, but, but most people agree um, with really an effort to thwart the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, and that was uh, something that, even though the anarchists weren't communists, they, they were very supportive of, of the revolution. So when they were putting out these, uh, I sort of shorthand by saying anti-World War I pamphlets, but what they're saying was really support the Re Russian Revolution, don't um, take up arms uh, against the Russians. And, and they even said as a PS in their pamphlets, we hate the imperialist forces in, in World War I even more than you do. And that was one of their defenses. We're not uh, impeding the war effort. We're actually just speaking about one aspect of, of the war effort. Um, but that uh, all those arguments, um, people really turned a blind eye to. Um, and uh, as you say, in, in Schengen, recently, um, the court had already said um, that similar uh, anti-war um, writings could be um, um, criminalized and, and people could go to jail. Molly um, uh, was going to go to jail um, for 15 years and, and her male defendants um, for 20 years each for, as Justice Holmes says, throwing out a leaflet um, that anyone has as much right um, to uh, write or read as they do the Constitution. So, um, you know, their story of, um, you know, in being engaged in, in illegal action is fascinating. And, and I frame it with um, a, a, a modern question that I did not know would be so relevant. I start talking about Madonna at the first Women's March saying, I've thought an awful lot of blowing up the White House. And then she quickly says, but I, you know, something like, but I've decided we have to choose love over hate. You know, that didn't stop Newt Gingrich and others from saying that she should be jailed for the, her remarks. Um, and I say the answer to, you know, our questions about advocacy of potentially illegal action um, go back to the Abrams decision and the test that Holmes um, sets up that basically ends up becoming the Brandenburg test that defines um, advocacy of illegal action, which is that um, you can advocate um, for something um, for violence or illegal action uh, as long as um, there is not going to be um, imminent um, uh, harm um, and that is directed to causing that harm. So uh, obviously in Madonna's case, um, you know, it, it wasn't uh, directed to causing that harm. She she immediately in the next phrase said that she didn't really mean it, um, and there was no there was no imminence. Um, no one at the women's march was violent, and also they how are they going to instantly build a bomb or something and and, and do it even on a practical level? Uh, I had no idea that that was going to become a, a defense uh, or woven into the, the defense of uh, of Trump in the second impeachment trial. Uh, but it just shows you how free speech questions keep. Um, coming up in interesting ways, and we can always gain a lot by looking back at the historical stories that form these rights. Yeah, and again, it's always fun to see how those those things play out on both sides of of the political aisle. Too, you have you have Madonna using it as a defense, you have Trump using it as a defense, and and people don't understand. I'm glad you 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 made that distinction in the book because people you do that a lot in the book. Actually, you you really clarify some of these issues that people don't really understand as far as the nuances of First Amendment. Is that yes, you can actually talk about violence you can actually advocate violence as long as you're not inciting people to go and do it right now and and so you, you see you know twitter lawyers all the time whenever anyone says anything about violence people want to have that person locked up and and you make that distinction that no if they're not actually inciting violence immediately imminently it, there's nothing unlawful about it yeah, and I think, you know, um, you've certainly talked about on your show um, before about how people are always sort of like, I believe in free speech, but. Right, right. Um, and um, so, you know, people are always willing to um, entertain the notion of restricting other people's speech. Um, but, uh, and, and we have to sort of, you know, keep thinking about one of the goals of the book is, is not just to lay out our rights, which is the primary goal, but for also people at, at, at not to be wedded to these particular comparisons to start 
thinking like a lawyer, the good aspect yeah. of thinking like a lawyer, um, there's some flaws, um, <laughs> as you may agree, but one of the good aspects is that you start thinking about problems by comparing them to other examples. Um, and so, you know, people uh, on the left, I don't think they would want Madonna um, uh, uh, put in jail or, or you, know, you know, slogans at, at Black Lives Matter protests, which I, you know, uh, participated in where people say no peace, no justice, um, uh, or, or no justice, no peace, you know, uh, or things like that, um, you know, that could be, in theory, implying illegal action. Um, I don't believe it is, but but we have to really, um, you know, the Brandenburg test and what came out of the Abrams case um, is a very speech protective test, which is that we only um, want to um, restrict speech when there is really an intent to cause harm and very likely cause harm. Um, and I, I think, you know, in, in the Trump insurrection case, I think it's a very close call because we did have violence um, and whether tr uh, Trump was directing that violence, I would uh, argue uh, that he, he was uh, leading to that. Um, I think we can get into interesting questions of, you know, how do we view the president in that context as opposed to a, an average citizen? Um, but, but, um, but to the to the bigger point, um, I am I am trying to give people not only the, the understanding of what their free speech rights are, but when the First Amendment really doesn't apply, and maybe advocacy or or um, change on that action has to come from another source. Yeah, yeah, and again, I I think that's a. a great point that i i do a lot of mocking of of lawyers and and law school on this show but one of the beautiful things one of the great things that i learned or developed in law school is is how to kind of extricate yourself from any situation and try to look at things objectively and say and, and I, I try to do this anytime i'm talking with a friend or anyone who who has a strong opinion about something going on in politics or something trump did or, or what madonna did and i say well if it was the president you voted for or if it was a celebrity that you liked saying these things would you feel the same way would you want the same thing to happen and i think that's such an important way to think is you have to look at these things objectively because that's the only way we can get to any sort of a universally applied rule is that you, you have to be able to say, look, I know I don't like this person, but I, I have to look at this in the long term picture that I'm setting a precedent here and it's going to apply to my side just as much as it is to the other side. So what do I want this rule to be? Yeah, and that's another thing, you know, uh, you know, I don't call them free speech heroes in my book because some of them are, are, are not good people. Sure. Um, but they're all free speech pioneers. And I, I think that you will um, and, and not just what I think sometimes people uh, traditionally perceive as sort of like the president of the United States or the New York Times or sort of monolithic institutions. Um, these are, um, you know, anarchists on the Lower East Side, school children who don't want to pledge allegiance to the flag, uh, another school uh, uh, kid who wears a black armband in protest of the Vietnam War, um, civil rights heroes, um, and also, you know, much more reprehensible people like um, Nazis in Charlottesville. So I definitely wanted to show that there is a sweep of people um, uh, involved in protecting uh, our First Amendment rights, um, sometimes for good and, and sometimes for not so good purposes. Um, but that uh, as a reminder that when people talk about, you know, today that are Republicans weaponizing the First Amendment or or other, you know, accusations from one side or the other, um, hopefully this cast of characters shows that free speech belief um, doesn't necessarily fall down on traditional political or party lines. Yeah. Let's talk about this idea of the marketplace of ideas. And that's it's a, a phrase that's been used a lot. I think Abrams, though, that you said was the first time it kind of came up, at yep. least at the Supreme Court. I, I don't know how convincing that argument is to me that the idea that if, if you have a, an open marketplace of ideas, if you just let people say what they want to say and, and hash it out, that the best ideas kind of rise to the top. Uh, and let me know if I'm, I'm you know misconstruing the argument. But to, to me, I, there's almost a – as much as I – I mean, I, 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 like, I love the intention of the argument, but there's a – it feels like there's a naivety of that argument in that, well – there are times where bad arguments are going to win out if they're just sold really well or if they do appeal to a specific sector of the population that's going to be active in, in getting the, that idea enacted. You you will have bad ideas win out. And so how do you feel about that, the whole argument? Can, can you first you know maybe yeah. give a little detail about the argument and how you feel about it? 
Sure. Um, so, uh, so Justice Holmes, in, in you know, sort of trying to defend the anarchists, um, I, I think actually I had a student point out this uh, to me that that perhaps he was going with a sort of economic model in, in order to defend radical anarchists to, right. to make uh, his that's um, uh, his defense more palatable or, or right. seem less uh, crazy or radical. Uh, but but what Holmes essentially says, paraphrasing, is that the best test of truth is the power to get itself accepted in the marketplace of ideas. Um, and so, you know, the idea is, you know, I, I think it also ties into uh, the Abrams, um, you know, location where they were. They were on the Lower East Side. There were these, you know, ghetto markets. People used to call the Lower East Side a ghetto. And there were these markets and there were pickle sellers and there were, you know, rag sellers and there were, you know, repair people. And they were all shouting at you. And somebody might say, those pickles are bad. These pickles are good. Uh, and that the, the, the person would walk around and hear different things. Um, and they would fit, find the truth for themselves, or at least um, the best uh, truth for themselves. So uh, let me let me defend that uh, metaphor, and, and then also sort of counteract it. Um, so one, I, I do think there is a sort of an intuitive appeal to it. Um, you know, we do have a capitalist system for good and evil, and so um, perhaps that makes sense. Then our, our free speech um, relationship or um, our, our model should be um, similar to that. Um, and you know, it, it it is very much focused on taking the government out of um, the equation, that the government shouldn't be involved in the market. It's not that necessary. So I think people sometimes focus on the truth aspect, um, which is harder to defend, and less on the let's remove government interference from the discussion in the market, which I think more people can get behind. Um, but and, and another thing that he says that often gets forgotten is that this is an, ex again, paraphrasing, is that you know this is an experiment as is all life an experiment. And, and it's an idea that I love that Holmes isn't saying this is definitely always going to work. He's saying that like an experiment, sometimes it works, sometimes it fails. But just because you know your test on a vaccine fails in, in one part, that doesn't mean that's not helpful information or that you have to abandon the experimental model. So that, that's sort of the best um, arguments, I, I think, that you know, uh, on a quick level that you can make for the marketplace of ideas. Um, uh, the, the worst arguments uh, or, or the, 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 um, the, the best attack on that model, uh, I do try and bring up in the book. And one of the things uh, I try very hard in the book to do is to not to say our current system is always right um, and, you know, sort of brush aside the critiques. There are very powerful uh, critiques of the marketplace of ideas from critical race theorists and equity theorists and others. Uh, and they basically boil down to this. Um, first of all, who is excluded from the market, um, you know, for outrageously long periods of time, Black people, women, um, some religious minorities have been excluded from the market. Um, and, and how can we have a marketplace of ideas if we're, you know, cutting out basically more than half of the population who can participate in that market discussion? Um, secondly, you know, what about economic power as um, you're also pointing out, you know, if you have a, uh, if you can pay for a bigger megaphone, you can pay for advertising, you're going to have more influence in the market. Um, and do we want, um, you know, the quest for truth to be so tied to corporate power or, or economic power? Uh, and then someone like Catherine McKinnon, who's a feminist legal pioneer, you know, has a, a very eloquent line where I'll, I'll paraphrase again. And she says, basically, has, you know, the truth of the Klan, uh, or the, the, excuse me, has the speech of the Klan ever, you know, uplifted the speech of black people? Um, has the speech of Nazis ever informed the speech of Jews? Has um, the so-called speech of pornographers ever helped the speech of women? No, she says. And it's a very compelling answer. Um, and, and so I think these are all, there's a, so much academic discourse about why the marketplace of ideas um, does not work. And, and a lot of it is hard to argue with because it is so compelling. But um, you cannot um, be engaging in a discussion about free speech at sort of almost any level um, without understanding this metaphor. You don't need to embrace it. You don't need to accept it. But what I'm trying to do is say, like, OK, chapter one, we're going to start with the key metaphor um, for basically all of free speech law. If you read anything, if you read nothing else and you read chapter one, you're going to already be able to engage in any kind of cocktail party debate you want right. about, about free speech. And I, so I do think it's necessary, even if it's problematic in many yeah. ways.
Yeah. Well, but I, I think you made a, a good distinction too, because there is a. It's a, you can make the analogy to to economics that there is a, a utopianism to capitalism, the way the way that some people talk about, it, in that just you know if you have a free market, everything's going to be great, and and just the, the best ideas are going to win. The people who who make the best products are going to get rich, and you can do the same thing with this marketplace of idea, which is oh, if you let everyone talk, then the best ideas are going to win out. But there's you have to look at it realistically and say say no, not all the time that the best thing isn't going to happen every single time but through this process of experimentation the idea is that there will be good ideas that are able to rise out of it and it, it's better to kind of have this chaos of freedom than to have some higher power tell you what the good ideas are or what the good products are right because who because ultimately then who will decide Right. And that's sort of, you know, along with the marketplace, the sort of, of ideas, a concept, the sort of who will decide uh, thing. I don't think anyone um, who was uh, a Democrat or, or liberal would have wanted the Trump administration um, defining um, what was truth uh, in the marketplace or anywhere else. And, and perhaps conservatives feel that about the, the Biden administration. Um, you know, at, at the end of um, most of my book is descriptive. Um, essentially, all of my book is descriptive rather than prescriptive. But in the afterwards, uh, I do have a few sort of maxims, um, I say pieces of, of, of guidance uh, uh, to consider free speech concepts in the future. And one of them um, is expand the marketplace of ideas. So just because you believe uh, or willing to accept that metaphor doesn't mean you have to sort of say, well, there's nothing we can do. I think there's a lot of things that we can always um, do in legislation or um, in activism um, to try and make sure that the marketplace is as open as possible. And then the metaphor works much better. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you brought up the idea of, of being descriptive as opposed to proscriptive, because I was going to talk about that. One of the other things I really love about the book is exactly that, is is that today it feels like if you're talking about anything related to current events or politics or law, everyone's left, right, center, libertarian, whatever. Everyone's trying to tell you what to believe. And I think people are are sick of that. It feels like you're being talked down to. It feels like you're being told what to believe. I, I just I love your approach to this book because it is just about, hey, here's some current events, here's some historical examples that are relevant to this current event, and you can make up your, your own mind. You're not telling people whether to support these anarchists and their petitions, or you're not telling people... You're not telling people to believe any of this. You're just saying, hey, here's what happened. Here's how it's relevant and make up your own mind. I just I love that. Well, thank you. I, I'm glad that worked for you. I mean, you know, even just talking with you for a few minutes, people might see that I have opinions. I obviously have lots sure. of opinions and, and have a political uh, point of view. But I, I did very much try and have the book um, be about um, describing, you know, controversies that we all are talking about from all sides and then um, present the case that really answers what the Supreme Court says of, about this. So essentially, what is our, our law today? Um, and I want people to be able to be sort of armed with the knowledge that they need to argue either for or against, I hope sort of for pro-free speech um, uh, doctrine, but but this book is designed for that people to have um, the user's guide they need to make the arguments that they want to make. Whether whether they are an activist, somebody you know, uh, uh, tweeting about a cause on, on Twitter, or just a concerned citizen, and and I think that so many books out there about um, the First Amendment are. This is my take on the way the First Amendment should be, and, and unless you really love that person um, or already agree with them, I, I don't find those books that interesting. So I, I yeah. was trying very hard to make the fight for free speech be about today and history, and then you can, um, you the reader, um, can fight for free speech every day as a grassroots yeah. activity. And I, I try to take the same approach with the podcast. Is if you listen to me, you know what my opinions are going to be on things, but it's my goal isn't to make everyone believe what I believe. My goal is to have interesting people on who have things to say and respect the listener and the audience enough to say, hey, you guys make up your own mind. I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be objective because I think that's there's something... I just I don't like that. I don't like I don't like people who who try to act like they don't have an opinion. So I'll I'll tell you what my opinion is, but I'm also going to present the other side because I think that's that's important. 
Uh, well, I totally agree. And, and you know, I say in the introduction that, um, you know, uh, one of the things I've learned from my career of um, basically always uh, talking about complicated free speech and free press concepts to smart people who aren't lawyers. Right. Um, so that's my job. And so that's the approach of this book, which is that um, we can ditch jargon and academic theory and, and, and law schools type citations. Um, and although there's a lot of endnotes in the book, if people want to delve into it, um, but uh, I try and remove them from the flow. Um, we, we can ditch all that and that wisdom can be condensed and it doesn't need to be dumbed down. And so that's that's the goal for this book. Yeah. I want to talk about shank and, and fire in a crowded theater because that's yeah. a phrase everyone's heard. No one really knows the context of it though. So I wanted to get into the context of, of what it means that to say you can't shout fire or falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. And I, that was Holmes that, that wrote that. Yeah. And what was he applying that to? So, you know, when, when Holmes is talking, so Holmes is basically saying, you know, there are limits on, on speech. And, and, you know, one of the interesting things about um, Holmes is that he really evolved. He did not start out as a, as a, as a champion of free speech. And there, there's a great book um, out um, called, the, I believe, The Great Descent, um, which I um, use as source material in the book. And it talks about Trump's evolution um, sort of intellectual evolution from a relatively conservative um, who um, you know served in, in the Civil War and basically had a phrase that was like you know um, basically my country right or wrong um, is what he had said at one point to really protecting dissent um, and being a champion of free speech by the time of Abrams and that's sort of the the pivot for him but in Shank. Um, he, he rules with the majority and, and restricting speech. And, and in sort of explaining why in some circumstances he can limit speech, he says the fire in a crowded theater metaphor, but I'm glad to have a chance, uh, another chance to talk about why people misunderstand this metaphor all the time. Because we say, um, you know, people say I'm for free speech, but, and they always will add to that, almost always will say, well, you can't cry fire in a crowded theater. But the quote from Holmes, which is crucial, is that you can't falsely cry fire in a crowded theater and cause a panic. So, you know, because if you're saying it's something that's true, of course, if you see right. something, say something. If there's fire, you're going to get a medal for crying fire in a crowded theater. And if you say fire, fire, and somebody goes, no, don't don't worry about it. It's a, it's a smoke effect for act two. Oh, 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 nobody's harmed. Okay, fine. There's no harm. That's not a crime either. So falsity and harm should always be, they're not necessarily the deciding factors, but they should always be factors when we're talking about um, the potential to limit speech. And people just skip over that uh, and say this metaphor means, uh, or this expression means that we can always restrict speech basically uh, at any time. So I say, you know, if you're gonna learn nothing else, learn about the, meta uh, the marketplace of ideas, even more so, if you're gonna learn nothing else from this podcast or from this book, um, please use the uh, fire, the falsely crying fire in a crowded theater and causing a panic metaphor correctly going forward. And uh, you'll already be way ahead of the game. <laughs> right. Good. Yeah, I wanted to clear that up. So, so I appreciate that. I could I could go through this book chapter by chapter. Every case, every everything you talk about in it is excellent. But I'm going to jump forward. I want people to buy the book. I'll jump yeah. forward to, uh, to the Pentagon Papers case. Yeah. And because this is another one of those big areas where people say, I, you know, I believe in free speech, but when it starts to jeopardize national security, that's when there's a problem. So can we talk about the Pentagon Papers? And I'd like to compare them to some of the more modern, you know, Edward Snowden and, and Julian Assange. And because and, I, I haven't really seen and I don't think you talk about them in the book, how how their situation is similar, or different from the Pentagon Papers situation. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. But the way I frame it in the book um, is to—it's uh, a little bit in the end notes. But um, but but um, the way I frame it in the book is that uh, we're talking about when Stormy Daniels um, appeared, uh, or tweeted out, her lawyer tweeted out that she was going to appear with Anderson Cooper uh, on uh, 60 Minutes. Um, at the time, first everyone was like, "What is she going to say?" And then shortly after that, people were like, "Oh, is she going to be able to say it? Um, because is somebody going to stop her um, for?" from speaking because she complicated but was involved in this NDA with 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 the president a non-disclosure agreement basically a contractual bar I know you know but a, a contractual bar that prevents um, people from speaking about a particular circumstance um, and would would the president of the United States which 
there was some effort on his legal team, um, didn't come to fruition to try and stop her from speaking. And, and I say that the answer to the, um, to the confidence that Stormy Daniels and 60 Minutes and the president of CBS News, actually, there was enough rumors that he had to sort of at a press conference had to say, this interview is definitely going forward. We're just working on it, um, is because of the Pentagon Papers case. Um, we can talk about um, WikiLeaks and other uh, leaks sure. in a minute, but but in, in the shortest version, it's it's I, I think you know the great First Amendment battle uh, of our time um, of past time, um, and uh, you know. Daniel Ellsberg, um, this very unlikely a rebel who um, served in, in Vietnam War and advised people like Kissinger and was working at the Rand uh, Corporation and actually was a co-author of the Pentagon, one of many co-authors of the Pentagon Papers case, which was a historical review of America's involvement um, in Vietnam as Robert McNamara became uh, the then Secretary of Defense, became disillusioned um, with the war and wanted sort of this comp comprehensive encyclopedic, um, ridiculous multi-volume um, uh, look into, I was going to say expose, but look, secret, top secret look um, into the war. Um, uh, Ellsberg becomes um, also radicalized um, about the ongoing conflict, felt like it was something that couldn't um, be won, uh, and tries to leak the papers to with little success, um, actually, until he gives it to the New York Times, um, who uh, takes it in, spends a lot of time reviewing it, um, and starts publishing it. But that you know, today we sort of will will debate about was this leak okay, was this leak not okay. But it, it feels more sort of philosophical, not legal. Everyone sort of accepts that leaks happen and the press reports on it. But at the time, it was uh, an incredibly um, radical notion. So much so that um, the Times fires the New York Times fires. Excuse me. Um, the they get fired. Uh, they get left at the altar um, by their law firm, uh, Lord Day and Lord. You couldn't come up with a uh, an old a white shoe uh, name like that if you saw it in a movie. But Lord Day and Lord drops them um, because they say um, not only uh, do we not support you publishing um, this top secret um, documents during wartime, um, you as a publisher might go to jail, um, and um, we're not going to support you. So they bring on uh, a, a young. Um, lawyer named Floyd Abrams uh, and his uh, partner, uh, a law professor, um, Bikel, um And um, they argue on behalf of the Times. And, and I talk about how the I do a lot of the oral arguments in, in condensed version in the book. And I think oral arguments um, at the Supreme Court are, are really fascinating, because so rarely do you have so many smart people who are really just trying to tease out different elements of, of how to interpret a law in, in sort of practical language. Um, and when you strip out, as I do, sort of the case citations and the procedure and some of the hesitations uh, and the back and forth, you can get an incredibly compelling um, narrative. And what happens in the oral argument um, is uh, Bikel, um is pushed um, to say, are you saying under all circumstances that if there was um, loss of American lives, um, that you would still say that the, the Times uh, has a right um, to publish? And he says, well, I don't believe there is any likelihood of, of loss of American lives in anything that's been published. And he says, no, 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 you have to answer the question. Um, and Bikel says, um, yes, in some circumstances, um, I believe um, that even the First Amendment right to um, publish information um, would be trumped by, you know, basically immediate and direct um, loss uh, of life or, or harm to American forces. Uh, and people, the ACLU was outraged uh, about that. Uh, one of the other justices says it's a pity that the Times couldn't find a, a lawyer that actually believes in uh, the First Amendment. Um, but I believe that's why uh, the case turned for the, the paper. And, and so the, the Supreme Court holds that even um, secret, top secret documents during wartime, uh, unless there is direct and, and immediate likelihood uh, of danger to the nation, um, that type of um, publication must go forward. Now, they also said that people could still be criminally penalized um, uh, for that publication. And, and uh, another running theme of this book is that just freedom, having free speech rights doesn't mean freedom from consequences. And that was the ultimate consequence. Um, you know, Ellsberg uh, 
um, the, the New York Times have, and then later the Washington Post have a right to publish the Pentagon Papers, but uh, Ellsberg was um, prosecuted, um, f again, for essentially espionage um, and, um, and probably would have been convicted had not Nixon overreached and um, um, bugged his psychiatrist's office and, and broke in and, and did all the things that led to Watergate. So Nixon wasn't undone by the Pentagon Papers. He was undone by um, his paranoia and his um, efforts to, to get Ellsberg. So Ellsberg's case um, is, is dropped. And what we what the takeaway is for today is that um, if you know you can publish top secret documents about the war during wartime, you certainly should be able um, to have Stormy Daniels um, speaking, um, despite the fact that you might have an NDA. Now, um, when I wrote the book, Trump hadn't been success, hadn't made an actual effort um, to um, stop publication of a document. But uh, but when the book was in its final stage, and I um, was um, adding in a few uh, notes about this, he did try and stop um, his family tried to stop his um, relative Mary Trump's book, um, and his administration tried to stop the Bolton book. Um, so we we then have examples of actually um, uh, government efforts to stop publication uh, of critical uh, information. And, and the Pentagon Papers is once again uh, the key case and the key reason why uh, those publications should go forward. Now, to get to your initial question about how is WikiLeaks or other leaks similar, you know, I, I believe in the shortest answer that they are similar and they should be equally protected. The, the, some people like Floyd Abrams, who was the lawyer in the Pentagon Papers case, uh, are a little more circumspect um, and, you know, are concerned that what the Times did was they took in all the material, they reviewed all the material, they spent like a month actually holed up in a secret um, hotel room, um, going over the material to check for accuracy and also um, to check um, that it would not uh, ha harm uh, American lives or, or troops um, or impede the broken down peace process. Um, and, 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 and WikiLeaks and other sort of dumps of information um, aren't necessarily um, serving in that journalistic function. Um, and, you know, there have been claims that, 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 that there was um, threats um, to individuals um, because of it. Uh, it's a little bit of a tougher call. Um, but I ultimately think um, that, yes, that, that you know, um, we, we absolutely need to treat um, the subject matter of what's happening, you know, leaks about government misconduct rather than the format of how it's happening, the press versus a website or, right. or um, you know, or, or the mainstream media versus, you know, online um, distribution. And, and do you see any fundamental difference between what Edward Snowden did and what WikiLeaks and, and Julian Assange did? I mean, I, I think there are, are differences. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I think Snowden was more circumspect um, and that uh, WikiLeaks was, you know, more of a, a you know, a complete blanket uh, a dump. Um, and and so I, I, I do circumspect both in, in what he was trying to um, uh, put forward. Um, and, um, you know, there was also greater indication of absolute um, illegality um, in terms of um, illegal wiretapping uh, or illegal surveillance of American citizens um, without sufficient court, court authorization. But, you know, I think he's a, he's a, he's a better um, test case. Right. Um, but, um, uh, but um, I, I still think it is hard um, to start cabining um, uh, what um, it's 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 hard to say that one of them is is protected and the other is not without eviscerating uh, the protections. Um, but once again, even the Pentagon Papers case says that um, there is a right to publish this material. That does not mean there is a right um, for the people who. Uh, who violated, you know, protocols or national security laws um, to release this material, um, they can still be prosecuted. Um, and, you know, even though I might personally find that problematic and think that there are better um, people to go after, um, it, it is not inconsistent to say um, uh, what the Pentagon Papers case protects is the right to publication, not the right um, to um, be immune from um, consequences. I was so disappointed when when Trump didn't pardon at least Snowden because 
I, I, you know, I thought he loves sticking his eye, his finger in the eye of of the institutions, and here's a way to do it for some good. I mean, this is a guy who was prosecuted by the Obama administration. Like, I thought it'd be such a good move for him politically that he would see that, and and we could at least get some good uh, out of his administration at the end. There, that was it was so disappointing. But uh, yeah, well, I, I think you know Trump is never going to uh, uh, align with dissenters. Um, you know, even you know he's even conflicted about when. Um, um, you know, aligning with dissenters who sort of support him sometimes. So, um, so uh, that wasn't entirely uh, surprising to me. And and it is one of the the great um, black marks on the Obama administration um, uh, in terms of free speech um, perspective. Uh, is that the Obama administration was, um, you know, more active in in, in prosecuting leaks than any other um, uh, administration in history? Now he didn't have the sort of um, combined antipathy to the press um, that um, Nixon and, and Trump had, um, but it is it is still um, inexplicable to me. I've never been able to ha wrap my head around it. Uh, 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 how um, Obama, the constitutional law professor um, uh, and a friend of the press. Um, uh, was um, was behind uh, those prosecutions. I, I, I have not heard a good explanation other than sort of he was, um, well, I've not heard a good explanation. But. <laughs> I, I haven't either. And that's, I mean, this is, goes back to kind of thinking like Laura and trying to look at things objectively is, is I, I think Obama is just as much a threat to to freedom and free speech and the First Amendment in different ways as, as Trump was. I mean, not not just leakers, but you look at people like, Aaron Swartz, you know, I did a podcast about him with Lawrence Lessig, and and he was a kid just trying to make information available to people, and and you know the Obama administration prosecuted him, and you look at someone like Ross Ulbricht. There's a lot of complications in the Ross Ulbricht case, but um, but again, same idea roughly, where where he's trying to kind of promote. He's an idealistic kid, and and the way they they swung the hammer down on him, it was just is that's another disappointment with with the Obama administration, the way they handled a lot of these cases. Yeah, I, I'm not. I, I, I it is a disappointment. I am not going to uh, agree that um, I'm going to push back and, and not say that they are that there is an equivalency here. Okay. Um, there is there is no equivalency between, in, in my mind, between um, uh, the Obama administration and the Trump administration in, in terms of free speech issues or or, or free press issues. Um, and you know, one of the other reasons now I'll use this as a segue now, um, is one of the other reasons I wrote this book um, is that we've had four years. Uh, uh, being told that the media is the enemy of the people and, and going back to what you said before i'm not objective I, I work for the mainstream media but i i also have um you know the, the privilege uh, of witnessing firsthand how hard people at abc news and i believe at other mainstream organizations worked um to get things right and, and to um and, and to tell people what they know and, and the truth and what they need to know um but we were continually told uh, by Trump, uh, not only that the, 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 the media is the enemy of the people, but the, but the uh, idea that the media can lie and get away with it. Um, and that is not what our libel standard um, is. And um, I, I talk about, that's the contemporary issue I use to discuss libel in my book. Uh, and then I segue into how the case that um, informs our um, libel law to this day is New York Times versus Sullivan, um, which is really about um, Martin Luther King and other civil rights defendants. Um, and, and their speech, and we have them to thank for the, the sort of balance uh, of the actual malice test that we have today. So um, <laughs> I do think there are big differences, um, but um, uh, even though there, there were sure. problems with the uh, we, Obama administration. We can agree to disagree on that. Yeah. I, I want to turn to something a little more fun. Uh, the, yeah. the co you were talking about oral arguments, and, and you do a great job of putting in these excerpts of oral arguments that that are great my favorite one is uh cohen versus california which yeah. is the the fuck the draft case and the, it was it was just so funny reading the the justices kind of giggling at oh is is he gonna say the word fuck at the supreme court and 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 the lawyers kind of joking about oh they're gonna throw me out if i say it can you talk a little bit about what was going on there yeah. So um, in uh, so I, I begin this chapter with talking about the woman, uh, Julie Briskman, um, her name later came out, who flipped the bird at Trump's motorcade, not realizing um, that there was a, <laughs> a reporter in the caravan who took her picture. It went viral. Um, you know, Stephen Colbert talked about, you know, long may she wave. Um, and uh, she she gets fired from her job, actually, be, because of it. And, and we can talk about how sort of private um, employers can generally 
restrict people's free speech all they like. Um, but I, I'd say that there is a right to offend, and it comes out of the, the Cohen versus California case. Cohen was a, a young guy who was appearing in California court as a, a, a witness in a different case, and he had on a, a, a jacket um, that said on the back, fuck the draft. And this is during the Vietnam War. Um, and uh, He's arrested for essentially disturbing the peace, even though there was no peace disturbed and nobody objected. And they mentioned it to the judge and he said, I don't care. Um, and, uh, and then the police arrested him uh, outside anyway. Um, and he was going to spend 30 days in jail. And, and this case goes up to the Supreme Court, uh, as you say. And, and um, Professor Nimmer, a uh, uh, noted copyright expert, but uh, also a speech expert, uh, ends up being um, his lawyer. And, and he became convinced in his strategy from the oral argument that if he did not um, say, fuck the draft in his description uh, of the case, that it would make it seem like the word was so powerful and dangerous that it should not be said in the courtroom like in, in Cohen, and that he would lose his argument even if everything else went well. So um, the, the Chief Justice tries to um, skirt over that uh, by saying, we're well aware of the facts, Mr. Nimmer, just you know, jump right in. Um, and he avoids that and says, well, thank you. I'll only be briefly about the facts. And um, he, you know, he's, he then describes how he wore a jacket that said, fuck the draft. Um, and he does, as, as you were saying, he tells his son later that he was afraid he was going to be taken away um, in handcuffs. Um, and, and people were, people on the court were outraged. Chief Justice Space supposedly got beat red. Um, there was a whole discussion about um, one of the justices would, you know, what, what if his wife heard this oral argument um, and, and heard that word? And, you know, people were like, I think it would be fine if she, if she heard that word. But, um, you know, the court um, ultimately says that there is a right to offend. Um, Justice Thurgood Marshall uh, in um, the oral argument, you know, pushes it back and says, you know, what is it, uh, what is the action that you're supposedly, what, what is that involving this disturbance of the peace? And he, he gets the, the, the lawyer for the state to basically say, no, it's the word, um, sort of doesn't even realize he's, he's made a colossal um, admission. Um, and so the court says that um, there is a right to offend and in beautiful language, one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. Um, and so, you know, there is, there is a right, um, not on television, broadcast television, which is another case I, I talked we'll about. We'll get into that. But, yeah. um, but there is a right uh, to curse. And even more importantly, um, there is a right for speakers to, ex to express the emotive value uh, of what they're saying. Uh, not only um, is our visuals part of speech because he didn't actually speak it, um, it was written, uh, but also just saying, you know, I disagree with the draft would not have conveyed the message um, that he wanted to uh, to express. Right. And, and that's another one of my maxims at the end of the book is that we should allow speakers the freedom to express their messages as they choose, because yeah. really, otherwise, um, we're not allowing uh, expression at all. Uh, again, I want to get into every single one of these cases with you, but I know we have a limited time. So the last case I want to talk about is FCC versus Pacifica because yeah. it involves George Carlin. He's one of my heroes. Uh, you didn't like to use the word hero in the book. I will call George Carlin a That's hero fine. free speech. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with Carlin. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, and uh, you know, on this podcast, we've talked about Lenny Bruce, who is Carlin's hero. I, I talked to Kelly Carlin, who's George's daughter. Uh, and George very much believed in in the principle of free speech. He wasn't just he wasn't just some guy who was just going off and and talking and and not knowing what he was doing. He was very thoughtful in yes. what he did. So can you talk a little bit about the background of of that case and what was going on there? Sure. So. Um... So, uh, so I talk about uh, the Carlin case. Um, and, you know, I begin with the contemporary uh, question of why can Samantha B. Um, call uh, Ivanka Trump, uh, Ivanka Trump, the c-word, um, uh, and, and seemingly get away with it? And, and what are our speech protections today? And it, and it does all boil down to to George, uh, George Carlin and his seven dirty words monologue, essentially, um, where um, you know he was also, uh, Lenny Bruce was also his idol. Uh, and he talks about um, how Lenny Bruce was the first person um, to talk about um, you know free speech in his act. Um, and he was destroyed because of it. I was the first person to do it and become a success. Um, I'm paraphrasing there, sure. but, um, 
but uh, so he he has this you know great monologue which you can listen to online um, uh, where he you know talks about the seven uh, words uh, that you can't um, say on television and the whole monologue is clearly besides saying the words is is riffing on the the foolishness of language and, and why are some of these words bad and other words not you know he says there's so many words in the English language but there are seven you can't say those must be really bad words I'm, I'm starting to that, lapse into a poor impression. I was going to say that's, that's a pretty good impression. That's not, uh, that's not you, too bad. Uh, it's, it's the tone is a little bit right. So, um, so anyway, it's, it's, you know, um, uh, he was compared to, to, to Mark Twain and, and others. He, he is satirizing language. He's poking at the counterculture, or he's part of the culture, counterculture, and he's poking at dominant culture. Uh, it, it's literally a monologue about free speech. It is not just a cursing right. incidental to his to his act. And one person complains. One one dad um, whose son was really like a teenager and who was involved in media and morality, so it was not just some random dad. Um, complains when he hears this monologue on the um, public supported uh, WBAI uh, radio um, and um, files a complaint with the FCC. And for the first time, the FCC tries to uh, restrict um, content based on um, cursing, basically, based on language. Uh, and when it goes up to the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Stevens, um, uh, in a, a you know, poor uh, decision in my mind, um, basically says that um, this is like an assault, um, that this is that you can't just say turn the channel because you've been TV and radio. So then new mediums today, everyone's talking about social media as the uh, as the mediums of choice, but but then the new relatively new mediums of, of TV and radio. Um, at you in your home, you don't know what's um, being said um, and, and what can parents do and what can other people do, um, so that the FCC um, is constitutionally um, permitted to regulate, if not entirely censor, um, a, a content based on language. Um, and then through historical anomalies, that has applied to broadcast television, um, but not radio. Uh, excuse, excuse me, uh, but not cable. Um, applies to broadcast radio and broadcast television, but not cable. Um, it's a historical anomaly that I don't think makes any sense anymore. But that's why Samantha B um, can say whatever she wants, or you can have the Bada Bing Club um, on um, HBO, um, and you, you won't see that on uh, network television. Um, and, and Carlin um, was very philosophical. Um, Justice Brennan has a great dissent, and he was like, yeah, Brennan, uh, us Irish guys stick together. Um, but he also um, says that he, you know, he enjoyed um, being a footnote in American law. Uh, and he's really more than a, yeah. a, a footnote. Um, I think you and I will agree that he is, he is a, a, a hero and a, a champion. Um, and, and somebody um, who um, sort of triumphs even when the case went against him um because most of uh, all of the book except for this uh, element is, is explaining the rights that we do have but there is no right um much as i might disagree um the, the constitution uh excuse me, the supreme court has repeatedly upheld the constitutionality uh, as recently as the you know janet jackson cases and, and others um that um the fcc has the full power to regulate um both fleeting images of nudity and fleeting curse words um, into the late night or early morning hours. Yeah. And it's so true what Carlin said is that that he found success doing what he did, whereas Lenny Bruce was really more of a tragic story. And, yeah. and again, if, if you guys are interested, go go back and listen to the podcast I did with Ron Collins and David Scover on Lenny Bruce. It, it's so important to understand this history because you, you do have to realize this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum, that George Carlin had to build on Lenny Bruce, and Lenny Bruce had to go through all he everything he went through to have a George Carlin, to now have the current state of comedy and, and this flourishing of speech. And so, again, what you did with the book... It's 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 beautiful. I just I oh, love it. Thank you. I I do. I want to ask you about social media before we go because sure. it is such a. I feel so torn. I still don't know how I feel about where to go with social media and what the law should do in regards to social media. I, I am very much a free market person where I say I don't like the idea of the government coming in and telling these private businesses what they can do with their platform. Yeah. 
it does also make me very uncomfortable that these platforms do have so much power, particularly in this past year when everything else was shut down. I mean, there was no public square. You legally couldn't go in the public square. All you had was these platforms to to be able to express your opinions, to be able to to discuss current events, and that's really where all that all of that stuff is happening. It makes me very uncomfortable that these platforms do have the ability to just say, we're just going to erase people. And and the way they do it at times, too, where it's across every single platform within a 24-hour span, they'll, they'll block someone. That makes me very uncomfortable. I don't like the concentration of power, whether it's government or private. I don't know what the solution is. There, there's no solution that, that I feel like I'm comfortable with this from a principled standpoint, from a legal standpoint. Uh, how, do, how do you feel about the whole situation? Uh, well, I, I think this is definitely the area today. I mean, maybe hate speech is one area where our, our current First Amendment standards are, are so troubling. Um, I ultimately believe we, we, uh, the, the court's approach is, is the right one, but deeply, deeply troubling. But And, and also that's particularly unsatisfying, I think, in, in the social media context because it's so new uh, and, and the court's um, review of the issue is so limited. So my, my book begins with case from uh, 1919 with Abrams, as we talked about, and the last case in the book is 2017, um, and that is really the Supreme Court's first and only significant uh, discussion of, of social media speech. Um, it comes about uh, in a case, um, Packingham, which involved a, a sex offender in North Carolina, um, posts on, on Facebook about a traffic ticket um, and is um, a very um, studious um, police officer, um, tracks him down and arrests him um, for violating this law that prohibited sex offenders from having any access to social media whatsoever. Um, and, and when it uh, gets up to the Supreme Court, uh, much as this is a, a very distasteful uh, person, Justice Kennedy, in one of his last um, significant um, opinions, you know, says um, sort of what you were saying that, um, you know, although this is a relatively new medium, maybe not so new, but that social media is relatively new by constitutional standards, um, it is um, like the town crier on steroids. Um, it is like the public forum or the public square um, brought into the vast democratic forums of the internet. Um, and so that now everyone um, has this uh, ability um, to speak um, where they couldn't maybe um, in, in real life, as particularly as you're saying during our pandemic times. Um, and the court holds that um, perhaps something narrower could have um, passed constitutional muster, but that there is a First Amendment right to access to social media. Uh, and so that we, so, so that's the only thing the court has really made clear. And, I, and even though the court makeup has changed, um, I, since then, um, I, I still believe that this court will will continue in that tr tradition. Um, so we have a we have a right to social media uh, to access it, but that does not answer, and that's where I think your discomfort comes from. You know, all of the sort of big questions uh, uh, about um, speech that are left. Um, you know, uh, but I do then go into sort of explain um, that you know to remind people why this doesn't answer the big questions, and that goes back to again the the private sort of government distinction that we're talking about. Private companies like Twitter and Facebook uh, and YouTube um, do not have to follow the First Amendment. Uh, the First Amendment, as you well know, says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the press, and Congress has been applied to the federal government and the state, but that's it. Um, and so um, a, there is no question constitutionally that social media companies have a right to kick anyone off, including the president of the United States, to, um, to take some ads but not others, to label content as misleading or inaccurate, to provide follow-up links. There, that is all constitutionally permissible um, because they are um, private actors and, in fact, are sort of expressing their, those companies' um, speech rights um, in, in their editorial discretion as they, as they move forward in, in controlling what's on their platform. So I don't uh, want to say that, therefore, we throw up our hands in the air and go, oh, constitutionally, there's nothing we can do. Let's just you know, focus on a different problem. Um, I just think this is one of the areas where the First Amendment is not going to be the tool um, to make change. Um, okay. So uh, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we can do. Um, you know, Sacha Baron Cohen has uh, attacked um, you know, um, what he calls the Silicon Six, and that's how I begin the chapter, uh, the leaders of social media companies um, for not doing enough to, to prevent hate speech. And I think he and others have been successful in, in getting more to be done 
not maybe uh, certainly not as much as, the, as he would like or, or other advocates would like, but but lobbying and public sort of um, you know aggressive criticism can make change. Um, you know, we could you know, one of the great flaws with social media companies is their lack of transparency about um, how they're um, editing or controlling the speech that's on their line. And, and I think it would be uh, potentially constitutionally, uh, not potentially, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually just say it. I think it would be constitutionally okay um, to say that we could uh, have laws that require greater disclosure um, from media, uh, social media companies about, uh, about their policies. And that's not everything, but, but if le at least if we knew what the rules were, um, we could advocate about those rules and make sure that they're um, applied fairly. So um, I think there's a lot uh, of, um, uh, of reason to be um, frustrated and, um, and sort of not feel like the, the court is doing enough here. Um, and I don't think that the court is gonna change. And I don't think um, that, you know, regulating um, the social media companies as a public carrier, like telephone companies, even if that is a good idea, I don't think that's ever gonna happen. The court has sort of, um, in a related case about cable TV, um, public access TV, and sort of dismissed that um, possibility. So I don't think it's gonna happen. So I think if we wanna make change on um, the way social media um, is um, used and applied, then we have to do it through advocacy. And, um, and that's hopefully uh, another takeaway that people will get from uh, the fight for free speech. Great. Well, Ian, again, I could keep you here all day. There, there's so many great cases. I mean, there's the the, the Falwell versus Flint case. I, I, one of my favorite. One of my I mean, favorites. Yeah. Two of the best personalities in American history. And and yeah. again, you the way you write about it, the the book is the fight for free speech. It really is a page turner. Uh, I've never said that about a legal book before, but if you're interested in <laughs> nice. in free speech in the First Amendment, uh, this is I recommend this for everyone. If you're a lawyer, you'll get a lot out of it. If you're not a lawyer, you'll get a lot out of it. Uh, Ian Rosenberg, thank you so much for your time. Is is there anywhere else you want people to find you? Uh, well, they can find me on uh, the fightforfreespeech.com is my website. Um, and I'm on social media um, for good and ill on at free speech book. Uh, and one other exciting thing is that coming out in November, uh, there's going to be a graphic novel adaptation of the fight for free speech from Macmillan for a second. Uh, that's called uh, Free Speech Handbook. And there's an amazing illustrator, Mike Cavallaro, who's really brought uh, these images, um, uh, these metaphors and images to life oh, that's so uh, i cool. hope people will check that out um when it comes out on november 2nd absolutely and i'll, I'll share that link when that comes out as well uh, ian again thank you so much for your time it's been fun eric thanks for having me